Pat's organisation relied heavily on fundraising and donations. There was a continual struggle to maintain the fundamentals of providing respite care, and the intervention of other friendly organisations was sometimes necessary to make things happen. Pat considers the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation as her first friend, and later the AIDS Council of New South Wales, today known as ACON. However, in the case of ACON, Pat found out that sometimes friends don't do exactly what they say they're going to do. At the beginning, the closest friend to us, to me, was the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation. And they had a man who worked with them, Mark Tejan, and he was a wonder. To me, he was a hero. He was Mr. BGF. Someone needed a washing machine, and he would, he'd get the washing machine, but he would bring it for the city, and he would hump it up the stair himself. He was Mr. BGF. And when we moved into the house we're in just now, the nuns and brothers had been running it, and we'd been providing volunteers. And when the church decided to give it away, they would convalescent respite care. We were looking for a place with very little money, fundraise money, so that we could give social support and advocacy. Somebody having a bother with Centrelink, somebody having a bother with housing or whatever, we could deal with it. We actually provided some of the care in that house. They had a house in Blacktown. And we worked together very closely and they they supported me with... Um, fundraising and stuff like that. So when they were going, we decided we got in touch with the the landlord and we asked him if he would hold the rent for six months till we move in and we got one of the other organisations to come in and take over respite care. It was really, really important because if they couldn't get respite care, they got sent by this time to a hospice and they'd be convinced that they were dying and they would die. So we asked if we could take over. The landlord said yes, he would hold the rent for six months, not to worry. But we had no furniture. And we needed, it. that's what we were after, the convalescent respite care. So we needed to have beds, comfortable bedrooms. So I got in touch with the accountant for the, the bookkeeper, whatever you call him, for the bishop. And I was told, oh, well, this is all assets now. We've put labels on stuff that go in here, there. And I said, look, we need it. We can't do this without it. And, you know, I knew, I know where the assets came from. They were donations, yes. But once they were donations, they became assets. What can you offer us? And I said, we can't offer really you anything, but I'll trust you to do the Christian thing. And I hung up on him. And, and in actual fact, they spoke to Catherine Ryan, probably said, who the hell is this bitch, you know, we're dealing with. And she actually said to them, if you're going to give this to anybody, that would be the best place to give it. And they walked away and left everything. Now, we took it over with six months' money, nothing else, and no funding. But with the idea that one of the bigger organisations, BGF, ACON, Health, whatever, would support 
convalescent respite care would come in and do it. And BGF said to me, Pat, I think you should do it. We will support you with it. So them and the positive group of people, uh, it's now Positive Life, I think now, and Acon were going to support us. So by the time it went from there to us having our first meeting with health, Acon had decided that they were doing the care outside, care in the home. That wasn't going to be our role and that they should get this. So they got this chunky money, they got the car, they got the worker, and we were left with the rest to run it. So by the time it was first talked about till we got to that first meeting, the whole thing had changed. Acon went and got, of course, because they're very powerful. The hierarchy were all budding politicians that seen themselves making a name for themselves. So they got it, and ironically, six months later, nearly everybody they got that needed convalescent respite care, they gave to us. So in the end, I said to the health department, who of course were like that with Acon, you need to relook at this funding because they've got the money, we're doing the work. So I was told, if you want, you can tell them that you want paid for the people that they're sending. So I told them, right, you can give me so much of that funding back or I'll charge you on a daily basis. And they said, oh, well, you can charge us on a daily basis. So I did at $50 a day, which was peanuts to what they would have got charged in any facility. So they had to do that for a while. It petered out pretty soon, but they'd done that for a while. So the organisation that helped us support them was actually the Bobby Goldsmith Foundation, which again was relying on fundraising like us, not with government funding. And that's how we survived. Pat was involved in both the organisation and provision of care for people with advanced AIDS and was often found holding the hand of a young person as they died. Often, due to the stigma and secrecy of the time, there was nobody else in the room. Even though clients under her care never died alone, Pat has an interesting philosophical take on the final moments of human life. If family weren't there, we were there. In fact, I spent a lovely night with a young Vietnamese man who was told he was going to die. And this was a young man that had come to this country, had family here, aunts, worked for them, branched out, he wanted to do his own thing, worked, got himself a little car. Him and his a friend had a couple of drinks and they were running around a roundabout in the car. His friend was tickling him and he hit a post and there was an accident and they both ended up in hospital and the young man recovered after a couple of weeks. He was charged. He was told he didn't need an interpreter, that he could get a lawyer that would represent him. He ended up getting sent to Silverwater Jail for three years. 
He was raped uselessly when he was in prison. He got transferred to Park Lee for his own security. He was a tiny, lovely little man. He ended up in Westmead Hospital. They reckoned that he wasn't going to survive long. And I was asked if he could come to Stabias until he needed to go to the hospice, because we're not hospice. People didn't come to our place to die. They came to get some respite, to get some social interaction, and and to get some education, and, and to get some advocacy. Because when you've got HIV, you're voiceless, because you won't talk out. If you won't tell your family, you're certainly not going to make a, ma- a noise in the community. And he... Um, when he died, his mother came here and I, f- I really felt for his mother because this was a big thing for the family. It had been kept quiet. He was in Westmead and he had somebody given him this fountain. It was just this tiny little thing. And the night that he died, I was with him all that night. And he said to me at one stage that, He was dreaming that he was back in Vietnam and he could hear the water coming down the little waterfall and it was going into the river and there were some flowers there. And when he went, I didn't even know he went so quietly. So I think everybody dies alone. Even when you're with them, they die alone. I think that's the way it is. In our last questions to Pat, we wondered if receiving the Medal of the Order of Australia was a welcome acknowledgement of her work and whether she had any messages for the community and the young people of today. Should they consider her a hero of her time? Getting the Medal of Australia, no, it doesn't make me a hero. And I didn't want it. But more than anything, I accepted it because I'm nothing without the volunteers. I was nothing. I could do nothing. It was the volunteers that made it happen. And a good percentage of the volunteers were positive people or people who had a family member that was positive or just your normal everyday housewife that wanted to help. Unfortunately, they don't get medals. So that's why I took the medal. And I was honoured to take it for their sake. If I had to give a message to the Australian community, I would say, and this is across the board, not just with HIV, is we're all part of the community. And unless we can respect each other and help each other, we won't survive as a community. It's a battle. And that comes across when you're dealing with something like HIV. Don't be so judgmental, just be caring and educate yourself. Know what you're talking about and then you can make decisions. If I had to talk to Generation Y today, I would say sex is very free and easy nowadays. Kids as young as 13, 14, 15 are having sex. They start off by thinking it's love and they move on very quickly. So 
for young, especially young women nowadays, it's very easy. By the time they're in their early 20s, they've had multiple partners. They, they, they begin to think of sex as something separate for, that they don't need to make a big commitment to, and they can pay a terrible price. So to them all, I would say, educate yourself and practice safe sex. And finally, we asked Patricia Doolan-Kennedy, OAM, just how she would like to be remembered. I wouldn't have a clue. I'm loud-mouthed. I like to say it as it is. I can remember one of the young men involved here, because he's young compared to me, when, you know, I got him just to do massage. And that was a big thing. Uh, because people with HIV were treated like lepers. So for someone to give them a gentle massage was a huge thing. So I'd like to be remembered as somebody that cared, rather than just all the organisations that will remember me as just one big pain in the ass. This has been the story of Patricia a grandmother's fight to do what's right, battling HIV stigma in Australia. Thank you for listening.